unintentionally everyone makes errors and I really wanted to catch all of those because I wanted this book to be trustworthy I wanted to be a place where people could put some weight on it and not not have it all fall apart mm-hmm. and uh, and that meant that you know it's, it's meaningful to me that my atheist colleagues endorse the book it's wow. meaningful to me that you know I put this forward when I didn't have tenure and they still gave me tenure <laughs> yeah pretty and, risky dude and this includes like talking about the de novo creation of Adam and Eve. And, yeah. And so I did this at personal risk, um, yeah. not because that was the wise thing to do, but because maybe it was the right thing to do. All right. Welcome to the All Things All People podcast. Um, you have tuned in for an incredible one. Uh, as I say most weeks, just by tuning in, you are part of the mission of All Things All People, which is to raise up a generations of Christian thinkers and here lately, we've been talking quite a bit about just teaching Christians to think like Christians. I actually have with me on this intro uh, the crew, Joshua Cribb and and Ben Cole. Um, and uh, y- you guys, uh, listeners and, and these boys, were privileged to already listen to the interview with Dr. Swamidas, um, Josh, who also, yeah, actually, it's Josh Swamidas, but Josh Cribb. Uh, what did you, how, how did that interview make you feel? How did listening to Dr. Swami Das's theories uh, make you feel in your bones? Yeah, it's the first thing. Uh, it's a really, really interesting episode. Um, you guys are going to love it. But I've never, most of the time whenever I listen to an episode of All Things, you're kind of like, oh yeah, I agree with pretty much all that that person's saying. Yeah, that's so good, that's so good. And I caught myself thinking like, I don't disagree, but I don't know if theologically I can agree either. Uh, I mean, he, is a crazy theory, but yeah. it's but but crazy in the way of I've never thought of that before. The way that he's putting it, yeah. um, I'm I'm just starting his book now, the genealogical Adam and Eve, um, and so far I'm really impressed just with the just the extent of his research. Um, yeah. But Ben is really uh, the reader and the heady guy within our group. Is that a is that a book you're going to pick up, Ben? Yes. Yes, hopefully, once I can get through with the ones that I'm on right now. He was a very interesting interview. Yeah. Very, very cool guy. Very interesting thoughts. I'd say I'd say, probably the first interview where I felt like completely in over my head because I have, I mean, biology in general was my, biology and math were like, or science and math in general were my worst subjects in oh, school. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I don't think about that kind of stuff at mm. all, ever. Um, did, now, did all of us go to public school? Did you go to public school, Josh? Hey man, absolutely. <laughs> West Brunswick High School, baby. Okay. Represent. You, yes. I, yeah, you went. To, yeah. <laughs> I won't say what school you went to, so that people don't stalk you or something. <laughs> but we know what high school. Yeah, we all went to. So you guys all were taught evolution in high school. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so for the listener, buckle up because Dr. Swaminathan's theory basically goes like this. And the reason I want to share it with you now on the front end is because honestly, you might miss it in the interview. Like. If you're not really tracking, I, w- I want you to understand exactly what this guy is suggesting. Now, Dr. Swamidas is a world-class uh, researcher at Washington University in St. Louis, one of the leading research medical institutions in the world. Um, when I introduce him, I really say country. I should have said world. Um, and he's a computational biologist. Google that. I can't really explain to you exactly <laughs> what a computational biologist is, but basically... He, through a process of of legitimate medical research that was verified, peer-reviewed by, like, other scientists, like, non-Christian scientists, and they all said that the research, the science was really good, has come to the conclusion of what he believes is that um, the Earth is, in fact, billions and billions of years old, Mm -hmm. and that the people who existed outside of of the Garden of Eden would have come about through a process that we call evolution, mm. but that Adam and Eve were created out of nothing or de novo. And, uh, that, you know, they were God's special chosen created people that they literally existed, a man and a woman that the fall actually happened in the garden and that Adam and Eve went out outside of the garden as Genesis depicts. And that by the time that Jesus came on the scene, that every, human being would have been a genealogical descendant of Adam and Eve. And just knowing that going into the interview is going to help you kind of track with what we talk about. We talk a lot about kind of how Christians should engage with science, how the theology of that theory 
is important and he realizes that. Um, and I'm going to be honest. Like I said this to him in the interview. I'm not sure how I feel about all of that. Right. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm, I'm a conservative evangelical Christian. I mean, uh, um, I don't know. I don't really know where I fall politically anymore. I don't know if you guys know where you fall politically anymore. Mm -hmm. I feel like a man without a home usually, but basically (laughs) like, I don't know how I feel about all that. I'm not a scientist for the last 15 years. I've not picked up a science book until I interviewed Dr. Swami Das. So I'm just going to be honest and you boys tell me how you feel like I'm going to go through a journey of reading that book and trying like, and I've already read it, but like I read it to interview him, but I'm really going to read through it and, and do some research on my own to see how I feel. But I don't know. I mean, you boys tell me how you feel about like, you know, you, in our circles in, in conservative Christian circles, like you start throwing about, you start talking about evolution and, and people kind of don't want to talk about that. So yeah, yeah, you guys tell me how you feel about it. Right. Yeah. For everything I've seen about the book, it really seems like whenever you hear Jeremy explain it, it seems like something that you definitely have to have a physical copy of. You need to be walking through I with listen uh, to the audiobook at yeah. 1.5 speed. Not recommended for real <laughs> understanding. Yeah, I usually consume via audiobook, but I'm going to be keeping up a physical copy just so I can kind of walk through it uh, because it it can seem a little bit heady, but you know it's it, it's really it's really something that can be grasped by the layperson who doesn't really have any um, from what I've read so far it, from anybody that doesn't have a background in science. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it one of the most interesting things to me in the interview is you hear him buck against the idea of the traditional view air quotes. And that was super interesting because the idea of him saying, where does the traditional view come from? It's a, it's a view that has really been, that's really come up in the last few hundred years that we are taking as tradition. And he really challenges that and really makes you think, is that the way Mm -hmm. that the, in that time, the Hebrew people, are they reading it? In, or are they are they looking at Genesis one? Mm-hmm. Are they looking at Genesis one, Genesis two, as as what we say is traditional or mm-hmm. the orthodox view? And he really challenges that, and that's something that I think all Christians should wrestle with, and that's why it's such an important book. Yeah, um, Ben, when you hear someone like when you hear a Christian say, you know, I, I I don't know how I feel about evolution. Like, do you feel like the visceral response that? Like, oh, no, evolution's automatically bad or, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I mean, we, we all listen to William Lane Craig. We mm-hmm. all listen to apologists and people who are a little bit more open-minded to that idea. How does that how does that concept typically strike you when you hear people talk about it? Sure. So at one point, I mean, gosh, probably like four, five, six, maybe years ago, at one point, that was kind of like a visceral, like, oh, no, like, we can't, like, we ain't touching that one. Yeah, like, that, that one's off the table. Yeah, this and that. But over the years, no, that is after listening to many apologists kind of give their view on and stuff that has certainly changed to where I hear it now. And it is not visceral at all yeah. to me personally or anything like that. And one thing that, you know, to those of you listening that you're going to hear Dr. Swamidas say is that, you know, we have to remember as Christians and, you know, if you haven't figured it out by now, just by tuning in and listening to us talk about him, Dr. Swamidas is, is, is a, I, I, I say all the time, a blood bought bulletproof Christian. I mean, he, he's yeah. just as saved as, as, as as any Christian I've ever met, I mean, he's a, can, showed through his faith of 100%. publishing a book like this untenured yes. at his well, college. Untenured at Washington University, since then has got tenured. Uh, the whole process of him writing this book is is just dripping in faith, and mm-hmm. so, um, you know, but but the reality is that, like it doesn't have to be that your faith is rooted in Genesis. What he yeah. says is too, too often our faith is rooted in Genesis and not Jesus. Yeah. And yeah, so what you're going to hear word. in this interview, to those of you listening is that, um, Christians don't have to be the dumb kids in the room. Right. And that's the whole point of this show is that we want to teach you to think like Christians. And the three of us are walking through that process of like, okay, I think I have this all figured out. Here's this scientist who says, maybe you don't let's listen to him. Right. And let's read his book and let's talk to him. And that's the great thing about this show. And so. So, yeah, I think those of you listening are really going to enjoy this. And if there's anybody who's really challenged me recently to change my paradigm, to look at the world, to look at a field that, you know, up until this point, I might have even been you might have been able to say that I ignore a lot of science because I just as a pastor, as a scholar, as a podcast host, I don't have to worry about biology too often mm-hmm. but like this guy dr swamidas is saying no if you really want to understand the bible you have to at least 
think about this. Um, and so, yeah. So, hey, listen, we don't want to take any more time from you, the listener. Um, I want you to, to dig in, to sit back, take some notes on our Christian thinker for this week, Dr. Joshua Swamidas. My next guest is both a medical doctor and a PhD, a scientist at Washington University in St. Louis, one of the leading medical research institutions in the country. His work in computational biology has led him to research and write the book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve, The Surprising Science of Universal Ancestry, where he explores an interesting scientific hypothesis regarding Adam and Eve that I am very excited to explore with him today. It is my honor to have on the show today, Dr. Joshua Swamidas. Dr. Swamidas, thank you so much for being a part of this. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so uh, I mentioned it just briefly in pre-show, um, but I feel like for my listeners and, and people who've come to hear your, uh, your expertise, um, I'd imagine you've talked to about 100 people in the last year who were like me, where biology and math and science is their worst subject. And yet now they're trying to consume uh, this high level research that you've been putting out. Um, how much of your life in the last year has been explaining what computational biology is to people like me? Well, I mean, it's been some of it. Some of it's been there, but you know, honestly, it's not that complicated. The book is really written. <laughs> it is yeah. to 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 really break it down in a way how you can. I was actually very surprised when they decided to uh, to put it into audio form because I thought you really needed yeah. to see the diagrams and to have the physical version of the book. But um, I've heard that uh, you know the audio version actually makes sense, which kind of yeah. is a bit surprising to me. So but that, but that is also a testament that you know this is an academic book. Yeah. It's really quality work, but it was also broken down in a way that I think that, you know, even if you're not a science or math person, you can understand. Yeah. Normally, because, you know, I'm constantly reading uh, books for this show um, from all my guests. I really feel the desire to honor my guests by by consuming their stuff. Um, and normally I listen to them at two times speed. And I had to bump yours down to about 1.2, 1.5, because, <laughs> uh, you know, even just words like genetic and genealogical and, and, and me having religious degrees had to go, okay, let's slow, let's slow it down. Uh, it was a, uh, it was a lot, but it was fantastic. And the book is phenomenal. Well, I think what it does is it, it really derails a lot of uh, set in a ways thinking we've had, we've kind of been on railroad tracks. Yeah. But it derails us off of that. So now we're kind of maybe freewheel driving now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and a big part of it is really understanding, Hey, you know, there is actually many types of ancestry yeah. And you can't think about genetic ancestries if it's the same thing as genealogical. And if you really understand what that, those two things are, it becomes actually yeah. very clear and obvious that scripture is not talking about genetics, but it might mm -hmm. be talking about genealogy. And that ends up right. being a very simple, basic insight that ends up having pretty profound consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And and before we really dig into the hypothesis that you put forth in the book and, and really why I think so many people are interested in the research, which is it has huge consequences for what we might refer to theologically as creationism, but um, you know, you are a, a very well-respected uh, medical researcher. And as, as I said, a computational biologist um, you have, you say in the book, um, actually I've heard you say this elsewhere where, where when you were growing up and you became a Christian, you got to this point in your life where you both trusted scripture and trusted science. And that sort of led you in the path that you've gotten to now um, what was that like growing up and, and really feeling led down the path to do high level medical research, but at the same time be looking at the scriptures as an authority? Well, it really started as a very personal internal conflict. I was raised young earth creationists and as I got exposed more and more to science, I found out more and more I was made for it, but it hmm. seemed to conflict with what it meant to be faithful to scripture and to the Lord. Yeah. And so it, it was a very personally difficult trying thing. And you don't really know how, I mean, I think at the core of it, as Christians in the Christian community, we're really working out what it means to have an authentic Christian voice in a secular world as well, which mm. um, which kind of feeds into this. You don't know, like, what, how do I talk about these things publicly or not? And so it ends up being a very personal, difficult struggle. But here's the thing. I ended up leaving creationism not really because of science, but really because of scripture. I was really concerned about how, um, how people I saw in Young Earth Creationism could take what might be a plausible reading of Genesis, 
But then they would take that reading as if it was the only one, and, and really it seemed to be substituting, uh, uh, taking God's word and really substituting it with man's word. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have no problem with God's word, but I do have a problem with that 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 move. That's a problem. I mean, that's not consistent with a high view of scripture. Sure. Um, and 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 it honestly starts to smell of control. Um, you know, all of these things that really start to make it look like it's of the fallen world, not actually a faithfulness to yeah. scripture, even though it was cloaked with all that language. So it was really out of faithfulness to scripture um, that I really had to walk away from creationism. Yeah. Um, now, that's not to say that I don't believe God created things. I think he did. Right. And I think there's a lot of questions I had about how it all fit together. Mm-hmm. But, I, but, I, but I really came to see just by looking at the text itself that there's that there is. Um, ambiguity in certain points and that's yeah. okay and then if you look at the tradition of genesis all of my expectations of what a literal translation were were blown out the window because it turns out you know augustine wrote a book um, yeah. on on literal translation of genesis and you read yeah. his literal t- translation it's nothing like the literal translations i thought were there so even if you're going to say we're going to stick to a literal translation that still leaves us with a big question of well which literal <laughs> translation right and what does literal mean even yeah. And so, I mean, there, so this whole idea of like kind of controlling how the church understood scripture by just mm-hmm. fiat and declaring yeah. that this is what it means. I, I just don't think that that um, is consistent uh, mm-hmm. with with uh, what I know of Jesus, what I know of scripture, what I know of the church. It, it, it's a real it's a real strong distortion. Yeah. So that's why I have to leave. I mean. I, I, there was other stuff, too. I mean, I, I, I from evolutionary science, I really see that God created us at least in part through a providentially governed process, a common descent. I think he was involved. It was providential. Um, I, I think science has a hard time really engaging those concepts, and I'm fine with that. Now, I had to see that for myself, too. I was really, I'd really gotten a lot of misinformation from other sources, frankly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it was really actually looking at the data myself and understanding the reasoning behind it, um, rather than just straw men of the reasoning. And realizing, actually, you know, some of the strongest evidence revolution and this was pretty striking for me and it hit me when i was in my biology undergraduate degree the strongest evidence revolution you know you might dispute it you might say it's wrong but what i found out is i'd never actually heard about it from creationists and intelligence right. line proponents that's not like they'd explained it to me and said why they disagreed they just never talked about it mm-hmm. which i mean that that was a very stunning realization uh, mm-hmm. where i realized oh either they just don't know what they're talking about or they're hiding it right. <laughs> sure yeah. and um and so, you know, I, I mean, I had to look at that and see. And there's just a point where, I, you know, as a scientist, I, I just got to say, it really looks like we share common ancestors of the great apes. Now, maybe that's not ultimately true. I certainly don't think it's the whole story. Sure. Um, yeah. But uh, but we but we have to grapple that reality. That's what it looks yeah. like. And sure. So we yeah. have to figure out why God made a world like that. And, yeah. you know, you don't have to affirm evolution from that. But, like, I mean, let's just yeah. at least start with that. You know. <laughs> why do you think... Um... You know, at least in the Western church, specifically even the American evangelical church, is there's such a vitriolic response to somebody saying what you just said. And and it's one thing to say, if you're a Christian, you say, you know, I've looked at the evidence and I don't support that that theory. But but there's also a response that even the word and you mentioned it in the in the book, even the word evolution provokes a very visceral response from many Christians as if, you know, it's it's on par with much of the, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the darkness that we read in scripture and things like that. It's such a, such a violent and visceral response. Why do you think that is? It's history, right? Yeah. (laughs) It's like the last 160 years of history. People were just convinced that if evolution's true, you have to give up on Orthodox Christianity. That's, that's what people thought. Now there's been a couple of people who have thought differently. Um, Mm -hmm. But even uh, like the recent incarnation of them, those evolutionary creationists that are out there, they argue that you still have to make major revisions. They still think you have to make major revisions of Christianity to affirm evolution. Yeah. And, um, you know, it just turns out that they were all wrong. And, mm. you know, I, I think that what the value of evolution is or could be is really kind of moving us back to a more orthodox faith grounded mm. more on Jesus. Yeah. Now, you ask why people are giving a vitriolic response. I think there's a lot of reasons. I mean, I think there can be people a little bit caught up in that old narrative still. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also, you know, there's a lot to be lost for some people if we kind of move away from conflict here. You know, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, there some people are very invested in conflict with evolution and, yeah. uh, or conflict with traditional Christianity. There's whole ministries set up to oppose yeah. it. And, you know, if, if your identity is really an opposing traditional Christianity or it's imposing evolution, well, you know, um, this is going to be a real hard pill to swallow that they're not in conflict. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is that that's, that's true. Mm-hmm. And we have to decide if we're going to, you know, li- you know, live by something that's not true or live by something mm-hmm. that's true. Now, th- yeah. That doesn't mean that evolution is true. I haven't even made that argument. I'm just saying right. that if it were true, it's not actually in conflict with traditional Christianity. Yeah. And, and that is my point. So, you know, if you mm-hmm. want to think that evolution is false, fine, then just take it as yeah. a thought experiment. Let's just pretend we're like an alternate reality where it's true. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> or like a fictional novel or something. Let's, let's just play that imagination game together and wonder then what it means. And we'll find it's not in conflict. You might still reject it ultimately. Fine. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I'm not trying to change your mind, but on that, but the key point is that it's not actually in conflict. That's something mm-hmm. that we really uh, you know, can come to actually just realize that that's yeah. true and kind of move past some of the conflict here. Yeah. Um, you know, you do an extremely good job in the book of navigating uh, this theological spectrum and then also the scientific or secular uh, world where talking about evolution is typically better found. Was there anybody, whether it be a book or uh a mentor or something an influence in your life that helped you navigate that theological world that led you to, in the book, you said the foundation of our faith is not Genesis, it's Jesus. And you, you seem to weave the theological and the scientific so well together. Was there, was there anybody in your life or any uh, books or anything that led you to kind of go, you know what, this theological world, we don't need to oppose science. Yeah. I really like CS Lewis's work and, um, he's not a scientist, but right. he thought about science a lot. I also really like Martin Luther King's work. Um, and I mean, not uh, if you actually read his work, not just kind of like the sound bites from yeah. uh, the I have a dream speech, but if you actually read what he's written about science, I think it's mm. really helpful. Yeah. Um, so I think those are probably two very big influences and then also probably, uh, um, Newbegin and proper confidence as well. Mm. Yeah. Leslie Newbegin. Um, yeah. and I, and probably the fourth one is I mean some of these are just information, but I'll tell you what the key the key things are you get from it. But I mean also in terms of understanding the history of how we got here, yeah. Um, the scandal of the evangelical mind by Mark mm. Knoll I think is really critical, and yeah. understanding the fundamentalist uh, modernist divide, which is really how we got here. Yeah. But C.S. Lewis is who I'll, I'll focus on for a moment. I think he he wrote a really important essay that I that I really think uh, everyone should read, <laughs> and too few people have. I mean most people have heard. The last quote, which I'm going to butcher right now because I don't have it right in front of me, but he said something like the very last line of it was this particular essay. It's called Is Theology Poetry? Is that, you know, I believe in Christianity not just not because I see it, but like the sun, I see all things by its light or by yeah, it, right? Right. Now, I completely butchered that. He had a much more poetic well. way of saying it. Right <laughs> down, right? Now, you've heard that quote, right? Of course, yeah. Now, what you may not know is that that entire essay is really, um, it, was a, it was an essay competition, really trying to, where everyone was answering the question, is theology poetry? And the question is, 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 is there any reality to theology? Yeah. Or is all the world really defined by science? That was the fundamental question they were asking. And so the entire essay is really exploring what's the relationship between theology and science. Wow. Yeah. And... Uh, and, you know, he wasn't a scientist, but I think, you know, they were dealing with this looming authority of science and how it was, had this ability to suck up and take the authority of everything and define all of reality, right? Yeah. And, um, and I thought C.S. Lewis's uh, response was brilliant. So he says that he's going to grant, he can see legitimacy to what science is saying. It's not that he's saying it's illegitimate. First of all, that's a fairly radical claim for a lot of Christians. Sure, <laughs> right. You know, they're, they're going to yeah. say that, you know, they're going to say that, you know, evolutionists, science so falsely called, <laughs> yeah. they're going to, they're going to deny legitimacy. They're going to call us all a conspiracy theory, but you know, you can see C.S. Lewis like granting real legitimacy to it. Mm. Yeah. But he's also kind of squinting and saying, but this can't be the whole story. Mm. Yeah. And there's this, the, in the very last paragraph, right before that last quote, uh, he kind of explains, uh, this really beautiful word picture, which I think is really um, has really been helpful for me. I mean, I, I first, and I, I first heard that quote actually when I was a science student on the subway, and going to a science meeting in uh, in in Boston because there was a church that would just put up that quote in all these places, right? Hmm. 
And it was a, a few years ago that I went back and actually read that essay and saw that he was actually talking about science. That was a surprise, mm. right? Wow. And when I got to this, this last paragraph, it all made sense. He said that, you know, um, the challenge that we really have is trying to distinguish the waking world from, from the dreaming world. Mm -hmm. um, wow. And that in the waking world, you can give an account of the dream. But in the dreaming world, it has like a sense of reality. But you can't give an account of the waking world. Mm. Wow. Um, you can't really. I mean, it's not big enough to hold the waking world. Mm -hmm. The waking world is big enough to hold the dreaming world because you just yeah. can't talk about it that way. Yeah. And so that's how he judges the waking world more real than the dreaming world. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And then he goes to science and he says, well, you know, theology in theology, I can give an account of morality, of the success of science, of other religions and of beauty. Mm -hmm. But in science, I can't give an account of any of these things. <laughs> right. And that's yeah. why I judge theology more real than science. Yeah. Yeah. And wow. so what was so, uh, I think what's such a turn about this is that actually he had the, he had the strength to grant legitimacy to science to say that it had a hold of reality in some way mm -hmm. and, and, and to, to deal with that, engage it as a real reality, but yeah. also say that there's a bigger reality here. Mm -hmm. And it's in theology, not science, that we make sense of everything together. Yeah. Now, this is, I think, what theology is supposed to be. It's where we right. sit down and look at scripture and science and experience and everything. And this grand conversation we've been having for thousands of years mm -hmm. in the church and outside the church, and then try to make sense of everything together. Yeah. Um, and when we, uh, when we ignore science, um, or we attack it as a legitimate, or we just take it as the primary speaker or the primary voice, mm. any of those things, it really takes us out of the opportunity to really engage with true reality. So I think yeah. this book is really an attempt to take hold of the truth I've seen in science and that mm -hmm. many other people have too. Yeah. And the truth that I affirm in scripture and see how to make sense of it all together. Yeah. And, you know, part of the reason that, you know, C.S. Lewis, just continuing on with him, part of the reason he was so influential even to this day is because he he stood in between two worlds. He was, of course, very famously an atheist before he became a Christian. And even after he became a Christian, part of the reason he's so influential is he was a, you know, uh, basically a mythology professor. And, and, and just he had this whole other part to him other than just being a theologian. And for you, I think part of the reason this book is so exciting is because you're not, I mean, I hate as somebody who has just worked in the religious studies field, you're not just a theologian. You're not just, um, you know, uh, somebody working in the religious field. You really have your feet in both camps. And in the book, you start off the book by explaining how the research came about. And it's built around this phrase that I just jumped off the page to me. And it, you said secular means fair. And you began this process of describing how you went through the peer review process. You went through panels, I believe, at like, a, you know, um, AAR, um, American Academy of Religion and all these other groups and all these other scientific groups and th these things. And, and you really put your work through the ringer, which is something that, in my opinion, doesn't actually happen very often in the religious world. So uh, before we really get down to the nitty gritty of the hypothesis of the book, why do you think um, it was so important for you to bring about the research the way you did to put it in front of the scientific community and say, hey, you guys tell me if you think this is ridiculous before I even go about publishing it? Hey, I want to be a truthful and rigorous voice in society. Mm. And we all have blind spots. I certainly have a lot of blind spots when it comes to typos, for example. And I can't <laughs> correct all my typos. I need someone to help me. And the same thing happens in science. It's complex. Um, you know, you know, unintentionally, everyone makes errors. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to catch all of those because I want this book to be trustworthy. I wanted to be a place where people could put some weight on it and not not have it all fall apart. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that meant that, you know, it's, it's meaningful to me that my atheist colleagues endorsed the book. It's wow. meaningful to me that, you know, I put this forward uh, when I didn't have tenure and they still gave me tenure. <laughs> yeah. Pretty and, risky, dude. And this includes like talking about the de novo creation of Adam and Eve. And, yeah. And so I did this at personal risk, um, yeah. not because that was the wise thing to do, but because maybe it was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, and I think, you know, even if you disagree with me, at least respect that I did this in service of the church 
at, at real personal risk. Yeah. And then oh, also okay. recognize that my colleagues, my secular colleagues, my non-Christian colleagues, they've really treated me fairly wow. over this. And they, and I think they deserve credit for that. I, I'd say the biggest pushback I've gotten has not actually been from atheists. Uh, I've even gotten, um, you know, fairly interesting reviews from people like Jerry Coyne who, you know, acknowledging that the science here is good. I mean, there are objections on the theology, but I'm not really sure if we're too worried about theological objections like that. Yeah, I don't typically um, go to atheists for my theology advice, but yeah, you're right. And so I think the question I think really becomes, you know, you know, I think one of the big one of the big things I think we need to think about is instead of really seeing, you know, the atheist as the enemy, the foil, the, the problem and secular science as being the issue, I think, I think, I really hope that we start to ask a different question. That question, I think, has a very clear answer. The question is, is the atheist our neighbor? Mm-hmm. That title's taken from a book by Randall Rouser, mm-hmm. who's a Christian philosopher. We don't treat the atheist like he's our neighbor. And I, I think that that's a problem. Yeah. I, I don't think that that's consistent with the high calling of our faith. I think the atheist is our neighbor too, even if they're of the anti-religious sort, but most of them aren't. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, I, you know, the atheists have been a neighbor to me. Hmm. Wow. Um, in many ways, far more uh, than uh, than many uh, many Christians I expected would be. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and I think and I think there's something important there. Mm-hmm. You said the the statement that jumped out to you is where I said secular means fair, and I talked about that in the sense of them actually granting me tenure after all of this. Right. right yeah. I think a really good analogy. I was talking to a, a group of students um, uh, back before COVID, maybe about two years ago, uh, that were all going through AIG's curriculum, and I and I said that there, and it kind of made a half of them fall off their seat. Wow! Because they'd all been told that science isn't going to be fair to them, right? And I've been mm-hmm. told that too. <laughs> but I think the analogy I gave, which I think was helpful to them, is just imagine a restaurant. I mean, we've all been to uh, we've all been to McDonald's, right? <laughs> or or you know, a local barbecue or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Um, you guys in North Carolina, you guys have barbecue there, right? Lots of, lots of barbecue. Whole hog, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You go to whole hog there, you go yeah. to a restaurant, you sit down. Um, uh, do people care if you're Christian or not? Not right. really. Mm-hmm. If you pray before your meal, do they add an extra, you know, amount to your bill? They don't. Yeah. <laughs> when you're, right. when your waitress comes or waiter comes and serves you, do you like care if they're Christian or not? Mm. Um, no, I mean, you go through that list, you know, it's just, it's a secular environment. It's a place where, you know, you can go and, and you're going to be treated fairly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And that if you were running that establishment, maybe you'll tell people you're a Christian or not. It kind of doesn't matter from the purpose of the business point of view, mm. but you're going to treat the atheist, you know, the gay person, the black person, the white person, you're going to treat everyone fairly. And if not, everyone's going to get annoyed with you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And frankly, you'll probably have some legal problems. I mean, yeah. that's how science is. It's fair. Sure. Mm. It's 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 not actually uh, it's not actually based on the conclusions you have. I, it's not based on belief statements. No one ever asked me at any point in my scientific training or career, "What's your position on evolution?" <laughs> right. Um, they they don't. They just don't care. In the same way, they don't care that I go to church on on Sundays. What they care is if I do good scientific work. And the reason right. why people endorse my book is because it's good scientific book work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, that brings us to really, you know, the, the, the hinge of all, of all of this is the, the hypothesis that you're putting forward in this book, which um, is, is, I think, going to end up being hugely influential in the field of uh, both genealogical science in regards to human origins, but then also uh, the theological side of that. And so, um, could you go ahead and explain? I, I, I normally I take the burden off of my guests of explaining their work, and I do it. But I feel like in this instance, it's probably going to be best if you explain uh, kind of the hypothesis that you're putting forward in this book and why it's such a big deal for uh, both the theological and scientific worlds. Well, it's a really simple idea, really, and 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 the analysis comes down to a couple of very simple simple things too. <laughs> uh, the idea is just that you know. Most people through history really understood Adam and Eve to be uh, to be defined by three things, that they were created specially by direct act of God without former parents. Mm-hmm. They were um, recent, you know, less than 10,000 years ago. Right. And they were ancestors of everyone, at least by the time that Jesus walked the earth in 81, right? Mm-hmm. That's what, how most people have understood uh, Adam and Eve. Now, um, 
evolution has taught something that seems to be in direct contradiction with this that we uh that we arise by common ancestry with great apes with the great apes meaning chimpanzees bonobos and gorillas and that our ancestral population never just dips below i mean just down to a single um single couple i mean a lot of the evidence against that has been really uh, overstated but we could say with pretty high confidence that over the last um you know few hundred thousand years the human population has never well, not the human. I said the ancestral population has right. never really dipped below two, right? Um, and so it just seems like that—that's that, in conflict. It can't all be true at the same time. And, and this is where um, we just turns out we were wrong. It turns out that there's a very old idea in theology that rises directly from the text. You see it in the Christian tradition, going back thousands of years, and certainly over the last five hundred, having nothing to do with evolution, where people just wondered about people outside the garden, right? So readers of Genesis have wondered about people outside the garden and wondered if there were people there. Because when you read Genesis, it's very clear in Genesis 2 that, that um, and 3 that the garden is a particular area mm -hmm. on the earth. And, and that outside the garden, there's death. And inside the garden, maybe it's free of death. That, I mean, you can't actually take a plain or literal reading of, of, of Genesis without doing right. massive gymnastics to ignore that sure. fact. Mm -hmm. And then when they end up the garden in you know Genesis four or five and six, and then you start also looking at the extent of what the scripture actually means when it talks about the earth. It's not talking about a globe. Um, you know, a lot of people have just been asking the question. You know, what about people outside the garden? And so what I what I'm just suggesting is a really simple idea: is that maybe sacred history is telling us the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, and how they become all of us, the ancestors of all of us. But that God had actually put people outside the garden, that he created them a different way through a providentially governed process of common descent, revolution. Mm -hmm. And that these two peoples, you know, ended up mixing together and becoming us. And so we really mm -hmm. have, you know, two sides of our family in right. our past. Yeah. And yeah. that's our natural history. And so genetics is telling us a true and legitimate story. It's just not mm -hmm. the whole story. Mm -hmm. Scripture is telling us the true and legitimate story. It might be the most important part, mm -hmm. but it's also not the whole story. Right. And so there's a way how, you know, if you just let science speak on its own terms, you know, let Scripture speak on its own terms, that, um, you know, they're distinct stories, but they're in the same physical reality, and they're both true, and they end up kind of entwining together, and there really isn't conflict. It's just, you know, mm -hmm. there's two blind men taking a hold of the elephant in different ways. Sure. So it's a very simple idea, right? Yeah. And right. so um, it turns out that as recently as 6,000 years ago, they could have been in the Middle East, and we all descend from them by 81. Mm -hmm. Now, the two key fundamental things that people have missed, I would say, um, is that genetics is not the same thing as genealogical ancestry. And you could add to that right. for, for theology, genealogical ancestry is the most important. DNA is a very weird way of understanding ancestry. Even though we think about it all the time, most people don't know what that means. So I really sure. explain what the weirdness of DNA and genetic ancestry is mm -hmm. and why it really doesn't make sense to think about, for example, mitochondrial Eve or, <laughs> or why chromosome Adam is mm -hmm. as the, you know, you know, as the, you know, as the Adam and Eve of scripture. Right. You know, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, that's not what we're not talking about. That's what's created an immense amount of confusion. But if you think about genealogical ancestry, it right. turns out there's really good scientific work that was published long before I got involved in conversation that really just gives a totally different answer. Mm -hmm. And when you look at scripture, too, it just doesn't mention DNA. Right. But it might be yeah. talking about genealogical ancestry. Sure. Well, in most uh, of the work, most of, like if you think about Matthew, uh, you know, essentially showing the divinity of Jesus, he's not proving it genetically. He's not saying that he has this particular gene of David and this, he's saying that genealogically Jesus, it falls into the line of David. And so what you're saying is that genealogically it's essential that all people by AD one are genealogically descendants of Adam and Eve, not necessarily genetic descendants of Adam and Eve being that, that part of our genes fall back to well, what I'm saying is that most theology could insist upon genealogical ancestry, right. but it can't insist on genetic ancestry on sure. foundation of scripture. That just doesn't make any sense. That's not, it's not coherent. Mm -hmm. um, now, some people might say that genealogical ancestry isn't important. I'm not necessarily going to fight that battle. I'm just going to say, but you know, maybe it's not important, but they are. You know? mm -hmm. And it certainly is important to some people. And if you look at church tradition, I think it has been important too. Yeah. 
Yeah. But um, but the other issue too, I think, is just as interesting and important. Um, and it's it's I think thinking about this is where there's a lot of fun, and I think maybe uh, there's also going to find the profound as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's a question of what is human. Yes. And uh, I think too often we've adopted, we're kind of faced with this grand beautiful question this mystery we've kind of adopted cartoon ancestors and just trying to give answers like well humans are it's obvious what a human is yeah well, right no it's actually not when you look at the evidence mm -hmm. you know uh there is this question about uh you know you know about how we actually define it in theology it turns yeah. out that there isn't a clear answer how do we define it in science this is the thing that was very surprising for a lot of theologians they've been so used to i think hearing people say that science had all the answers that they just didn't know that scientists don't have any way of defining humans. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I think that really was surprising yeah. for a lot of theologians. A lot of them have mm. commented on that. Mm -hmm. And and there was also a lot of equivocations. A lot of people would equivocate all of our ancestors. I mean, this is very ironic because it was it was evolutionary creationists that were doing this um, and still do, frankly where they equivocate all of our ancestors with human, but they should be of all people know that not all of our ancestors are human. Sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, so, yeah, I mean, that's, so the, the tremendous thing though is, and as I keep saying, like for someone like me looking at your work, that's the interesting, um, you know, for, for, for all of modern history, there's been a, a severe bifurcation between the theological and the scientific. And it's, it's just almost like even in my lifetime seemed like they've, grown more distant um and here you are in the middle saying hey let's you know let's meet back uh together to to get lunch you know and um you and know, have so, real dialogue and, and have real dialogue right and that and that's to me um having you know participated in meetings of you know the american academy of religion and other peer review type organizations i've seen the secular world work and i think here you are introducing a lot of christians to the idea of saying Hey, what, what does the evidence actually say? You know, but so then you continually run up against these theological principles that I'd love to hear you discuss when you first began to navigate, okay, then what does the image of God imply? Um, and that's obviously a huge question in, in your work. It has to be, if you're going to stand in between the gap between these two worlds. And so what has been the, the most common uh, thought and answer you've had in regards to, okay, so what about the Imago Dei? Well, the most common response is that people will say, oh, it's obvious what it is, but without any knowledge of all the disagreement there is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I would never. Like my, my answer is obviously yeah. correct. Oh, people have a different view? I didn't know yeah, about that. <laughs> I've always been really scared to, I mean, it's like, you know, we don't, I don't know. I just, people ask me that a lot, you know, in, in the, the idea of saying, hey, think like a Christian. And then people will say, well, what does it, what does it mean to be created in the image of God. And it's like, I have about five legitimate answers that would sound really good, but I don't a hundred percent know. So what, I mean, what do you think in the process of this research? What, well, I think there's an interesting parallel about how Christians are fighting about, or theologians are fighting about that. And, and in general, the public is largely oblivious to that debate. Of course. <laughs> uh, and there's really no good way to resolve it right now. And what's happening in science about the meaning of human. <laughs> Mm, yeah. So there's a chapter in the book where it's called, you know, humans and science, where I talked about that problem in science. And then the second one's called humans and theology. And it, most of it's talking about the image of God and how it's mm -hmm. being talked about. And so, um, you know, I think people really care about the image of God, you know, and if they care about it, maybe they should kind of learn how different people think. About it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and start realizing that, th that actually scripture doesn't tell us very clearly what, mm -hmm. what it is. I mean, mm -hmm. exegetes, um, do have, I think, a part of the elephant. They really emphasize the vocational view. But there is a lot, there's a lot of complexity here. So I think what's going on is that really in both science and theology, we're starting to wrestle with this grand question of what it means to be human. And um, I don't think we should expect simple answers. And, yeah. and I think that that's actually part of the fun of it, to kind of mm -hmm. sit down and think about that thing. I mean, that, that's, that's the grand, I mean, they've been, I mean, I'm certain they, people were, you know, around you know, a fire pits, uh, chewing like a piece of a mammoth 40,000 years ago, wondering what it is that made them different than everyone else. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're just joining that long conversation. Right. And so that's what we should be talking about. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's an opportunity to get educated about that and to kind of mm. learn, you know, how are scientists thinking about it? How are theologians thinking about it? How can there be a real exchange between these two? Mm -hmm. And one key thing I've really realized is that we need to really reframe some of the conversation here. The issue is not so much the image of God when it comes to the theology how it interacts with theology, it really has to do with humanness. So science can't mm. really engage questions about 
the image of God because it's not a well-defined concept and science right. doesn't really consider that anyways. Mm -hmm. But it can start to address questions about humanness and when humanness arises in the garden. And we can debate that. I mean, outside the garden or, you know, on the world. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. And there's, and it's debatable, right? So, um, and then it brings us back to a different question of, you know, is there humanness outside the garden? Is that tolerable? And I think I, I'm, I'm convinced that there's no, there's no theological problem we should have with humanness outside the garden. Um, and then comes the question is the image of God outside the garden and how, how are humanness and the image of God linked? Hmm. And there's different ways to handle that. Now, if you think that, um, humanness and, um, image of God are very tightly linked and that Adam and Eve are the progenitors of, of the image of God. Um, so that's like a view that's, uh, very similar to like William Lane Craig's. Yeah. Then having nothing to do with genetics and genealogy though, um, you'll just want to have Adam and Eve more ancient because we see evidence of humanness right. really ancient. Mm. If you're someone, you know, like Walton or, or Heiser or most exegetes that you're kind of looking at all these other things and it's kind of making you think differently about that, you don't really see those things linked that way, you're probably going to be more open to the idea of, of you know, humanness arising long before Adam and Eve mm -hmm. outside the garden. And you'll probably have debate in your head about whether or not those people are in the image of God or not, but you'd still think that they were fully human. Mm. And um, now, of course, in our world, everyone that's fully human is in the image of God. Right. And so yeah. we can start thinking about other things that actually scripture and theology calls us to think about, about what it would like, what would it be like to be human and not in the image of God or human and in the image of God or human and not fallen. I mean, we already know that um, that we're just in part of a story. There was a time when God created humans in the garden where they weren't fallen. <laughs> right. Yeah, And we know that somehow we're going to be redeemed in the future. And it's not mm -hmm. going to be the same as we are now. Uh, there's going to be mm -hmm. some sort of continuity. So um, so we're in this weird spot as Christians of, of being in a progressive faith, which tells that we're in the middle of a story. Yeah. And yeah. that this isn't our final state. Mm. And we have some clues about where it's been and where it's going. And we also have clues that it was different in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and while we are changing, God is still the same. Hmm. You know, so you have this, you have this theory now, um, this hypothesis, it, it, and I'd imagine at a certain point, it, it started to almost feel somewhat more devotional to you that you started out looking at it very scientifically, but then, you know, even hearing you talk about it and, you know, um, and reading the book, um, cause I, I mean, I, I'm sure you've heard this before. I'm just like, I go, okay, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure where I land on this, but I'm thinking about it deeply. And I go, well, there's parts that I don't like. There's parts that I like. And of course you and I were talking pre-show, but some of the parts that we don't like, we don't like them because traditionally we've been told not to like them, of course, you know, especially the word evolution and things like that. But do you feel at all that this, this hypothesis you're laying out that to a certain degree, when we think about the gospel and we think about Jesus, cause you know, you said the foundation of our faith is not Genesis, it's Jesus. Do you feel at all that perhaps there's even more beauty in this narrative than some of the historic narratives that we've come to accept because it's almost as if God adopted Adam and Eve or adopted humanity because of the de novo creation, almost like he adopted Israel and chose Israel. And like by the time Jesus comes on the scene, all of humanity now can be ransomed from their sins because of the genealogical ancestry that's available to them in Adam and Eve. Whereas if there were humans outside of the garden pre Adam and Eve, you know, maybe they, maybe they, we don't know, maybe they weren't in the image of God or maybe uh, they weren't part of any sort of plan for God. But do you feel as if maybe you've, and I'm not, I don't want you to hype yourself up or anything, right. But I'm not asking you to do that, but do you feel as if maybe there's, there's a special beauty in this narrative that isn't in some of the other historical narratives? Well, I wouldn't put it that way. I think this is the historical narrative. Sure, what I would say sure. is that, um, I mean, it is a historical narrative with some of the details mm -hmm. filled in. <laughs> right, exactly. And yeah. so, I mean, I think no one historically thought it was a hermetically sealed, complete account. I mean, mm -hmm. there was questions. And I mean, there's a point even um, in church history, it was considered heretical not to think about God making people in other, other planets, because that was to limit God's power. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I think, you know, I, I'm not going to, it's not, this isn't opposed to the traditional account. What I'd say, sure. it's opposed to um, a lot of the narrow ways of thinking we have today. Well, the, the accounts that we deem traditional now, I should but say. But they're not traditional. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, some of the things that we think are orthodox are new 
I don't think that they're orthodox or traditional, and I'm not going to grant yeah. them that language. What I'd say sure. is that, you know, like the narratives that I heard in young Earth creationism, the narratives I heard even in old Earth creationism and evolutionary creationism, they really just seemed efficient. Like at times they were just taking one, a hold of one side of reality, mm-hmm. and they couldn't give an account of everything together. Right. Yeah. And... And, you know, I, I think I think there's a there's a beauty in returning to the actual Orthodox faith and a beauty in returning to the traditional reading in these yeah. things. You see that there's something same. There's really something same about it mm. yeah. where it really it really is deeper. And when you think about getting those details filled in, I think it does add something um, that just like kind of like salt to a meal. It's not <laughs> like the meal isn't nutritious before. Yeah. It's just that you have the salt. Yeah. There's a little bit more flavor to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um and yeah, maybe a little bit of chili pepper too, right? You know, exactly. it kind of gives it some kick. And I think yeah, there's something. Yeah. And I think that's really maybe the best way to say it is really what you're saying to the people listening to this show, to people who've read the book, to the, is that what you think was orthodox actually wasn't. And what you think was the historic tradition might not have actually been. And you even say, no, definitely wasn't. And and I think that's probably, I'd be interested to hear uh, from you before we, before we finish up what the response from the church has been, because I think that's the, maybe the most difficult part is that you're saying to uh, quite a few people that, like you said, have been very close-minded on this and have assumed, oh, we have it all figured out. You're saying, not only do you not have it all figured out, you think this is the orthodox view and it's anything but. Well, I think in most cases, it's the both and. Like, I think that what's going on is that we have a lot of blind people grabbing the elephant, right? Mm. So I think there's actually a lot of legitimacy in the young earth creationist position. Sure. Uh, So I'm not trying to say that they're all wrong. Yeah, right. Um, But but I think there are some things that they're wrong in. And frankly, they've given up in trying to make sense of it all together. And I think that that is deeply wrong. That is a deep departure from the Christian tradition. Like we really think that what scripture teaches is about the physical world that we all inhabit, including what non-Christians inhabit. Right. And it's not that non-Christians are going to get everything right all the time, but we also think there's a common grace there and there's going to be some coherence between how we're all thinking about things. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you know, um, I have a lot of friends that are, you know, evolutionary creationists and they're usually, you know, no Adam Christians. Yeah. You know, they've taken a hold of science and I think that that's great. Um, mm-hmm. But they've also done done that by rejecting a lot of, you know, historical Christianity. Mm-hmm. And yeah. to be clear, you know, they have also held on to Jesus. So I affirm them for that. I think that that's mm-hmm. great. They're, they're Christians, too. I mean, <laughs> right, I don't yeah. have a problem with them. I mean, they, I mean, I would give them communion and all that sort of stuff. But I think they've lost something really significant. And in this, I think, you know, they're kind of departing pretty dramatically mm-hmm. from the Orthodox Christian faith. Yeah. And, I'm not really comfortable uh, with that glib dismissal of tradition. Now, for a long time, they thought they had to because of science, but that's not true. And yet they still do it. So I think that there's some questions about why Mm. um, that are that are lingering there. I mean, and and I think it's been a hard conversation for them to work with. But, you know, before we talk about this difference, well, I guess we've already talked about these these difficulties. The reality is, I think in most camps, it's actually uh, there's really usually two communities that really arise. There's usually a group that really is it really gets a sense of relief mm-hmm. and, and, and really wants to take the invitation. And even yeah. if it's not personally their view, they want to make space for it. And we've mm-hmm. seen that happen in, you know, you know, you know, every place you look. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you'll see people that really retrench and either because they're really devoted to arguing against evolution yeah. or, <laughs> or arguing against uh, traditional Christianity mm-hmm. and, and they're going to fight it out. And, you know, I think, I think that that's okay. I mean, we mm-hmm. can't change everyone's minds. It's just that, right. you know, the bulk of us, I think, are not like that. I think the bulk of us want a better way. So I think I think what we can do is we can just start, like, you know, just let them fight it out. And let's just kind of move forward. <laughs> present your evidence. And and present your reasoning better. and say, do with it what you want. You know, uh, I mean, yeah, that's it's it's been interesting to me. So leading up to this interview, um, you, you know, I, I work in a church and so I'm around people all the time. And I've just sort of said, Hey, listen, let me tell you kind of what this guy's saying. And you let me know what you think. And I mean, there's a lot of people who've grown up in very conservative churches, very conservative theological circles who, when I've told them your hypothesis, they go, you know, you know, uh, I kind of like that, (laughs) you know, and, and you could sense for some of them, it was, you know, it's almost like, Cause you know, I'm not, yeah, I'm not a biologist. And so when I'm, when I come up against uh, somebody who believes in evolution, evolutionary science or something like that, we have been trained in conservative evangelical circles to automatically reject all of their suggestions, basically 
without really answering to their questions. And I feel like you're beginning to provide the, the opportunity to say, no, like we actually, we can actually dialogue on that. And then without, like you said, without abandoning, uh, theological faithfulness. Yeah, the way I, like I describe it in the book in the last chapter is I said there's an opportunity for confident traditionalists to arise. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah that are, that's a great term. That are unthreatened by evolution, whether it's true yeah. or false. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think traditional Christians have uh, been threatened by the idea that there might be any legitimacy to evolution. Yeah. And I think that that's an insecure sort of faith. Yeah. And, you know, it's not good for your children. It's not good for yeah. you. I mean, it's not fun. Who wants to be insecure? Yeah. You have an opportunity yeah. right. to embrace like a real strong, high view of scripture, really mm-hmm. understand how how uh, these core doctrines in our faith, like the fall and mm-hmm. how what our ancestors have done, about has had an impact on us in a way that might even give salience to understanding actual real issues that we have in this world and might make mm-hmm. sense of it. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah. And to be able to talk about origins in church, even with people that you disagree with in a way that mm-hmm. doesn't just completely inflame everyone. Yeah. You know, you, you have that good path available. Um, you have a path to confident faith, a faith where you could even, you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of people, when they get my book, they actually give it to a scientist they know that's not a Christian to get their feedback. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or it, because it's such a stunning conclusion that I have. And, you know, what they found is that it actually builds credibility with the, yeah. the scientists. Well, and you know, the Christian faith historically. Because it's a good book. Just that. I'm giving you like a huge gift, like an <laughs> yeah. olive branch. Take it. Let's yeah. go forward. Yeah. So, so I mean, historically, one thing we've lost in Christianity, um, in some circles, is that we invite criticism. Is that you know we invite dialogue, and you know some of the people you've mentioned now, um, in you know modern times, somebody like William Lane Craig or like an Alvin Plantinga, um, or somebody like these men, and then also historically in Augustine, somebody. I mean these these people, their work was founded on asking these difficult questions. And so I think we have you said confident traditionalist, which it's sad that up until this point those two words have been antonyms, you know, that it's just like to be a traditionalist, you sort of have to turn a blind eye. And what you're doing is opening a portal, opening a window to say, Hey, maybe we don't have, maybe, maybe the history uh, supports our, our theses here. Well, I think, I think it's a fundamental problem. Actually, I think we've had in the church. I think we've misunderstood stubbornness and closed mindedness as confidence. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I would agree. That's not, confidence that's insecurity people yeah, it's who not are close-minded yeah. and stubborn they're insecure <laughs> yeah right and so uh, and, and i think that's what's led to deep instability and you know when we can't find ourselves we kind of look to leaders that project the right image of stubbornness yeah. and <laughs> yeah well I'll, I'll, i mean i'll tell you my, my daughter's seven years old i think she might be smarter than me she wants to be a zoologist she loves animals so she's she's on the discovery channel all the time and here i am as a pastor uh, as so, you know, like I've, I've, I've reiterated, I have no scientific training at all. And she's asking me all these questions and daddy, I, all these scientific questions that I don't have an answer for. And, you know, your work has begun to give me hope that, um, that there's going to be answers for her questions, you know, that, that aren't just sleight of hand you know, aren't and also questions saying. for her answers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 100% too. Well, that's my favorite thing. So she's, 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 she's a lot like me and she loves asking and answering questions. And so, um, you know, I look forward to engaging with her on some of the things even that you've suggested of saying, well, hey, you know, what's even more interesting. What about this? And, you know, as opposed to in the field of biblical studies, and especially I was a youth pastor for a long time. And I remember kids saying, so who did Cain and Abel marry? And we sort of glot, we go, oh, well, we don't really know. Maybe it's sisters or something like that. Hey, look at the flood, you know, and it's like, uh, don't look at that. And, and really what you're at a very basic lay level, what you're beginning to allow pastors who engage with you. Take that question seriously. Take it with the kid about that. Exactly. And you say, you know, I don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt, but what about this? How about, how interesting is this? And it, and it, and it's bringing evangelical Christianity back into, uh, making it to where we can operate in the secular world and not feel as if, you know, we're the, the dumb kids in the room, you know? 
Um, well, and, and I, I think yeah. that there's an opportunity. Like I said, I mean, I think we felt like you know there's a, there's science there, and we're excluded. But you know, maybe it's maybe it's just McDonald's. Maybe if we go and we <laughs> sit down and we you do know, good yeah. work, we actually pay our bill, and we don't do things that we shouldn't. Maybe we're going to be welcome there. And I think I think I think you might be right, and I'm glad to have you you know being a big part of leading that way. So, uh, you know, so we we you know we've covered a million different things, and I knew I, I, going into this, I was like, there's no way we're going to be able to really really pick apart your hypothesis. And so if somebody's listening to this and they say, uh, this Dr. Swami Das guy, his ideas sound fascinating. Go to the show notes right now. Um, go pick up the book, um, either print or Kindle or audiobook, um, and read it, listen to it. It's, it is phenomenal. And, and I can personally endorse it, uh, from two vantage points. One theologically, I thought it was very sound. And then second, as a layperson in the field of science, I, I could read it and enjoy it. It was very challenging and I look forward to continue to digesting it. And so Dr. Swaminas, it was, a, it's really an honor to have you. I'm, I'm so appreciative of your work and I'm excited to see, you know, what the Lord continues to lead you to do in the field of science and theology. And so if, uh, you know, you write another book, we'll have to have you on again and you can, you can explain that one to me too. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot. It's really great. It's great meeting you. Great talking to you. Yeah. Thank you so much, sir.